Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Bad lot of Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves world champions. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. And welcome into From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios on a Sunday evening and what turned out to be a not-so-bad weekend after all for the Atlanta Braves. It wasn't how it started. It was how it needed to finish. And we just had to finish the game on Sunday, honestly, to know which way uh, things were going to be going with this 2-3 out of three against the Orioles. One of these clubs was going to win the rubber match. And this Braves and Baltimore battle that we saw over the weekend I don't know. It was kind of fun and a little bit unlike some of the matchups that we've seen throughout the year or some of the teams maybe we're just familiar with because we see them so darn much. This is an Orioles team that last year really took baseball by surprise by having a pretty good year. And this season, it seems like they'd like to have an even better year and they might just do it. Very, very good weekend series. Sunday, though, the heroics belong to Michael Harris II in the end as he delivered the walk-off hit in the 12th inning to bring the Braves the victory they needed to take two out of three from the Baltimore Orioles. So some good things happening on Sunday. We're, of course, going to get into that. And we've got so much else to get into here on the show as well as we go along and try to catch you up on what was the week that was for the Atlanta Braves, what is the week ahead for the Atlanta club as well. There's going to be something, I think it's called an off day. Dom, have you checked into this? Could you look at uh, maybe either the schedule or dictionary.com or just some place where we can get idioms Uh and things, phrases, where we can get definitions of what exactly is a scheduled off day. Right. So uh, that, that scheduled off day is basically when there's a day where you are scheduled There's or since no there's game. nothing on your schedule. There's, so there's no game to be so played. You don't play a game. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to rain. No, 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 and no. you're saying it, these it, things are part of the schedule every year for every team. I, I promise you it happens wow. every year. Wow. I had forgotten about these things. We just <laughs> had had a scheduled off day. Dom, my producers, always appreciate you being along here for the ride to keep this show going. Does a great job each and every week. But, yeah, the, for the Braves – we knew this was going to be a test, this 17-game streak with no scheduled off days. Now, we did end up getting the couple of rainouts in New York. We talked about that last weekend, how that kind of changed the dynamic. You got to rest the bullpen after what was a really taxing homestand prior to that. Yeah, you took three out of four from the Marlins, but you got beat up by the Astros. But since we last cracked a microphone here in the Kia studio, some good stuff has happened for the Braves, including finishing off that series with the New York Mets, where they did take two out of three after winning a rain-shortened opener and then splitting a doubleheader. Then the club went on down to Miami and decided to go ahead and finish off an actual sweep of the Marlins this time around, a three-gamer, before coming home to face this very capable Orioles club. And it is a tough club, as I've already said. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of the ins and outs of some of these games and obviously a lot of the stories that go into that as well. Before we get too deep into the show, I want to remind you, as always, you can find From the Diamond here on 92.9 The Game each and every Sunday. You can also subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me all season long on Twitter as well and even into the offseason. We'll talk baseball year-round. That's what we do here. 365, that's the kind of service we're going to have. At Grant McCauley on Twitter and Instagram. You can like the show on Facebook. Just search for From the Diamond. And if you need links to everything and more, fromthediamond.com is the place to find that. 
We do have a great show on tap for today in addition to talking about what's been going on with the Braves this week, the excitement of Sunday, this weekend series against the Orioles, and another series victory for the Braves, which, by the way, has been a little bit tougher than we've wanted to in the home ballpark thus far. But the Road Warrior Braves, and I'm not talking about the ones that painted their faces and ran roughshod across the wrestling world in the 80s and 90s, but these Braves this year have been kind of a version of the Road Warriors with a 15-3 and record away from Truist Park. It's pretty impressive. And it's a big part of Atlanta having the best record in the National League, by the way. Don't let me bury the lead on that one. This has been a very good start for this club all around. We're going to have a great show, though, when we talk about all of the Braves stuff and also another club that kind of has run roughshod across uh, all of Major League Baseball here to start things out, and that is a surprising name. Not that they aren't good year after year, but just that how did they get this good? The Tampa Bay Rays, they're the best club in baseball record-wise. You you look up and down the statistics that have gotten them there, I think you have a pretty good idea how it is they have had so much success. They out-homer everybody. They outscore everybody. I've heard, and we don't even need Dom to confirm this, but when you score more runs than your opponent on a given day, you're going to win a lot of baseball games in most of those given days. That's going to be the case. Can't Can't confirm. confirm. There we go. We've double-sourced it here. We always do that. Uh, But, yeah, the Tampa Bay Rays have been a very good club this year, a very good story. And my buddy Neil Solons of the Rays Radio Network is going to join us a little bit later in the show. Give us some insight on how exactly the Tampa Bay Rays went from being that really uh, almost like annoyingly proficient team that seemed to do the little things so well and that seemed to find a way to win despite no monster payroll, despite dealing with their ballpark situation that I think a lot of people have just you know kind of wondered, do the Rays actually have a fan base? I can tell you that they do. They might have a little bit more of a fan base if they continue to win like this and if they're able to get that new ballpark over the finish line as well. I mean, it is a very well-run club and a very proficient club on the field, all the other stuff aside. And I've known Neil for a very long time. He's going to give us some insight on what exactly makes the Rays the Rays and why that is such a great thing for the Tampa Bay Club this year. He'll join me a little bit later in the show. I've also got Ryan Fagan of the Sporting News joining me. And this is going to be a discussion that's a little bit different than our usual baseball talks. But if you follow me on Instagram, you know I like to do a little thing called Wax Pack Wednesday. So each week... I'll go through my archives or go out to a local card store or wherever it is and pick up a few old packs of baseball cards. Typically, 30 or so years old is what I like to, you know, get somewhere in the early 90s, maybe uh, mid-80s as well, sometimes a little bit earlier, but typically, if we don't want to reach too far down into the old pocketbook to just have a little bit of fun with some baseball cards, I'll find something good from what we call the junk wax era. Well, if you remember collecting cards back in those days, there was a little thing called Diamond Kings. And Diamond Kings were an insert card that came in Donruss. Donruss, as we continue this history lesson, is a company that exploded onto the scene in 1981 after Topps had its monopoly over the baseball card industry, the first one, not this most recent one where they've kind of been, you know, the only game in town or the big game in town and the one with the actual uniform uh, names and uh, logos on them. But Topps, after buying Bowman, I believe in 1956 or before the 1956 release, They had 25 years unopposed in the baseball card world. Donruss came along. Fleer came along. A little bit later, Upper Deck came along. Score came along. There were some other companies, if you uh, did collect back in the day like I did, which was a big way that I learned the game, to be honest with you, because you didn't have the Internet and you weren't jumping on BaseballReference.com or Fangraphs or whatever your favorite site is to kind of see where your favorite players are, even ESPN.com. Something as simple as, hey, how do we check all the scores? Well, you wait for the paper or you go buy a paper, and then you're able to find those scores. And then SportsCenter clearly came along. I mean, there was just such a difference in the way that the game was shared so long ago. And I know folks still collect baseball cards. I know I still do. 
The new part of the hobby is a little bit different, but I love getting into the vintage cards and the junk wax cards. And so to get back to Don Russ coming onto the scene, after the first year when they tried to do, well, we're baseball cards and gum, and they were told, no, you're not doing gum. Well, they ended up doing a puzzle. And the puzzles was always something that came with the Diamond King, which was original art by an artist named, a painter named Dick Perez, who did this for about 15 years. I mean, and it was one of those things back then that you didn't buy a pack of cards hoping that you were going to get an autograph out of it or a piece of the jersey or whatever it is, or a piece of bat, you know, all the things that come with today's collectibles. You got a very artistic rendering of maybe one of your favorite players, and those were just a pretty cool little thing. Well, there's a documentary coming out on Dick Perez that kind of goes into how exactly did he get a job. I mean, how do you apply for the job? I'm going to be the painter that's going to create baseball cards. So go ahead, hit me up. Let's start this project. I mean, and how do you do it in the early 80s as well? It's not like you can just put your work all out there on the Internet and somebody hits you up and says, hey, I really like that thing that you posted on Instagram the other day. Let's give you your own line of cards. A lot of artists these days, though, especially with some of the collaborations from Tops, they're able to do that. They're able to take their art directly to a baseball card. Dick Perez is kind of the OG of that. Well, you think he was, like, showing them maybe, like, hey, these are, like, some sketches for, like, comic strips I did or something like that. No, I mean, I know that the story, and we're going to get a lot more of this from Ryan Fagan of the Sporting News, who sat down with Dick Perez, did a really in-depth conversation with him, and there's a documentary coming out just about how exactly this artist was able to turn his love for baseball into an outlet of baseball cards as well. He's also been commissioned by the Hall of Fame to do all kinds of different portraits and artwork. I don't know that there may be anybody else in the world who's ever painted baseball as much as Dick Perez has painted baseball. And I got to tell you, that's a pretty cool gig. You find something you love, get to do it for a long time, and you get to share your art with millions of people. I don't know. I, I'm automatically interested in that. And the, the, fact that, or the fact that you could open up a pack of baseball cards and find his work right there in a time which, you know, you had to kind of seek these things out. I, th- I thought that was kind of cool. So anyway, we're going to have Ryan Fagan on a little bit later on. don't want to spend the whole conversation here in the first segment, but we're going to have a lot to talk about when it comes to the Donruss Diamond Kings, the artist Dick Perez, the documentary that's coming out on him and all of those good things. And, of course, we're going to get back into our Atlanta Braves conversation. Some notes quickly uh, from Sunday. The Braves in first place in the National League East came into Sunday with a six-game lead. Walk-off win over the Baltimore Orioles. Take two out of three from a very good Orioles club. And this is right after a 5-1 and one road trip, which, again, as I mentioned, I mean, the Braves have been great on the road. 15-3 and three now, best road record in baseball. That's a big part of Atlanta's overall 24 wins already this year. If you're curious when they were getting to the 24-win mark last year, well, you'd have to wait about three, three and a half more weeks because the Braves had a lot of trouble just getting to 500, let alone getting 10 or more games over 500. That didn't happen until, I believe, late June. I'm going to track that down. And we're going to talk about the differences between this year's start and last year's. You don't need me to tell you that it's better, but how demonstratively better it is and how much baseball is left to be played and how much the Braves are looking to get themselves healthy and get themselves on a roll and play the kind of baseball they're capable of. I know Brian Snitker alluded to this uh, over the weekend. Look, I mean, we haven't really necessarily hit our stride yet. We're happy with a better start than we had last year because last year they dug themselves a very big hole and the Mets helped out because the Mets were gangbusters out of the gate and had a great first couple of months. So by the time you got to Memorial Day, you were kind of wondering. I mean, you had, obviously, a lot of talking heads in other markets talking about, well, the NL East is over. But in fact, it was not. But the Braves had to play about 700-plus winning percentage baseball to be able to surpass the New York Mets. And this year, they've at least made their job of moving into the summer months a little bit easier with a much better start. But we've also got some injury things in the background. We've got a comeback for Orlando Arcia. We've got an injury to a Braves starting pitcher in Kyle Wright who's landed on the injured list. 
And there's a little bit of intrigue or at least some mystery around the status of Max Fried. Those are some things we're going to talk about in addition to Neil Solons and Ryan Fagan joining me later on in the show. Hope you will ride along here with us on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Coming at you from the Kia Studios in Midtown on a Sunday evening as we wrap up what was a good weekend for the Braves. I say overall, a great week for the Braves. They began it way back on Monday, splitting a doubleheader against the Mets to give them two out of three in that series. They parlayed that into a three-game sweep of the Miami Marlins. And then they just took two out of three from the Baltimore Orioles at home. And the homecoming, or the return, I should say. I mean, he's been here for a while. I've been waiting on the club to get back in here so he can jump back in action. Shortstop Orlando Arcia back in the lineup for the Braves. That's just one of the many stories and one of the many injury updates that we're going to get to as we talk about the week that was in Atlanta Braves baseball. And injuries have, injuries rather have continued to be a big story for Atlanta. They got that good update on Sunday with Arcia back after three and a half weeks. Of course, hit by a pitch back on April the 12th by Hunter Green. Uh, a micro fracture in his left wrist, but uh, I don't know. I, I kind of got the indication a couple of days ago, just being down at the ballpark, asking Brian Snitker and ask him specifically, you know, what's the prognosis on Arcia? And it didn't really include a big timetable. It was just, you know, he's making progress, coming along. They're going to check him out. I kind of got the feeling like, okay, well, it's going to be a little while before he gets back. Because at that same time, and we'll hear from this gentleman in a minute, the Braves had just called up Braden Shoemake from AAA Gwinnett. So I figured if you're going back down to the well to bring up another young shortstop, you're going to look to give him a little bit of time and you know help you to fill that time and maybe find out what you've got in that player before the guy who had the job you know, to start the season gets back in there. And that, of course, was Orlando Arcia. Now, Braden Shoemake did come up. He has seen a little bit of action over the weekend against the Baltimore club. Uh, however, Vaughn Grissom, has had a little bit of a rough go of it, especially over the last week or so. And in particular, I think Saturday was a tough one for him. He had a fly ball down the right field line that I don't know that he was really tracking. He definitely wasn't running. It didn't end up being a big deal play, and I don't want to just harp on it just for the point of harping on it, but he ended up at second, probably should have been at third, but Ronald Acuna Jr. drove him in. It's a moot point, and that's fine. But then in the next inning, you had Orlando Arcia making an error that led to the go-ahead run for Baltimore. And, of course, Kevin Pillar came through with the go-ahead home run to help the Braves win the game on Saturday. So you had some things that kind of covered up for it, but I guess what we're looking at here, if you just want to take the individual performances, it's been a little bit of a rough go for Vaughn. And from an offensive standpoint, I know he'd like to get himself established and have the kind of impact he did in 2022. That wasn't really taking place, and there were some errors. And I think that for the first time, at least in a long look, going back to spring training, when I remember tweeting this and, and kind of, fielding the different questions that I got about it at Grant McCauley, by the way, if you're curious about that, you can follow me there and love to talk baseball with folks all season long. You know, what did Vaughn Grissom not do to win this job? Because I didn't really feel like Orlando Arcia came into spring training with a major claim on it, as opposed to Vaughn Grissom, obviously, who got a lot of talk all winter long and is a 22 year old that profiles as the kind of prospect that you might want to build around at that position. And then Braden Shoemake kind of got in there in spring training and threw his name in the hat and, I think might have been maybe the most improved or the most surprising player for a lot of folks in watching this club play. But it ended up both those guys went down to AAA Gwinnett. Orlando Arcia got the job. But as things go, a couple of weeks later, Orlando Arcia got hurt. Vaughn Grissom was pressed into action. I would say that he held down shortstop the best that he could over a period of time. But when it became time for Orlando Arcia to jump back in there, a little bit quicker than maybe we expected, Sunday was that day. And the corresponding move, of course, for that was Vaughn Grissom going down. Meanwhile, you're going to have Braden Shoemake hanging around for a little while. And like I said, I mean, Major League debut happening on Friday. 
That obviously is a big moment. We'll hear from him in just a minute. Uh, but congratulations to Brayden for being able to kind of travel that path as all prospects want to to make it to the big leagues. And he is now kind of the de facto backup, I think, in infield. He can play second. He can play short. You know, if you need him for either, either of those things, he runs well. He's a good defender. It might surprise you, run into a couple of home runs here and there. But, you know, it, it just maybe he profiles a little bit better for somebody that could come up and play that utility role. A-Ray Adrians is on the injured list, by the way, so that means they need somebody to be a backup infielder. So you had to pick, I think, between Grissom and Shoemaker, and maybe the Braves just want to see what Shoemaker can do for a little while. And Vaughn's headed back on down to AAA. Uh, so let's hear from Braden Shoemaker, actually, because I, I do think that, you know, a lot of folks have focused on shortstop all season long, and with the departure of Dansby Swanson, it was a huge story all winter. Orlando Arcia had you feeling pretty good there for the first couple of weeks before an injury kind of crept in there and uh, put some doubt in that position. But for Braden, uh, called up this week from AAA Gwinnett, where he had been hot for a couple of weeks, still looking to, uh, I think, make an impact with the bat, but it looks like he's going to be sticking around. Uh, let's hear from the young man as he was called up to the major leagues at Truist Park a couple of days ago. It's very surreal. I mean, turn the corner and just seeing the ballpark's really when I think it set in the most. Um, a whirlwind of emotions at that standpoint, but it was really cool. It was cool to walk in here and uh, say what's up to all the guys and talk to the coaching staff, and it was awesome. Is it a little different when you think about the journey it took for you to get here, a little bit of a wait, and now you finally get your opportunity? Yeah, it's, uh, my wife always tells me, like, God's got a plan, he's got you. And so that, that's kind of what I was trying to stick to is just grind every day and, and trust that uh, he's got a plan for me, he's got a plan for us and our family, and uh, it's led us here, so I can't be more thankful. Any of the guys give you any advice? Uh, the biggest message is just be yourself. Um, don't try to do too much. Be a piece to the puzzle. Don't try to be the whole puzzle, I guess, is the really the biggest thing. And just try to help the team win in any way possible. I mean, it's, it's hard to do. and think that way when you're in the minor leagues because obviously you want to get to this point but once you're here it's, it's all about winning at this point so that's our goal yeah there's no question it's all about winning in the big leagues and if you do enough good things in the minors you typically get an opportunity to be and I really like that to be a piece of the puzzle you don't have to be the whole thing and typically every club you, even if you've got somebody who may be a bigger piece than the next guy it's going to take 26 pieces to put it together and get where you want to get so congratulations to Braden Shoemaker coming up and getting to call himself now a major leaguer. He has made his debut, and we'll see how the Braves choose to utilize him with Orlando Arcia jumping back in on Sunday and returning to that shortstop role. I feel like there were some plays in this game that you thought, all right, that's kind of the stability that Orlando Arcia brings to that position as just being a veteran guy who has you know thousands of, of innings there, and that that's just the guy that you trust with that spot right now. That could change in the future. I, I don't think that this is... You know, the jury's come back in with this verdict on Vaughn Grissom's career. I don't think that could be further from the truth, but sometimes, you know, you get that opportunity to jump up, as Vaughn did a year ago, play a role and help him out. And then other times, you know, it's the waiting game is part of it, and that just is part of the deal. But congrats again uh, to Braden Shoemaker. Now, it's not just shortstop that we've had a little bit of injury, inconsistency, those kinds of things going on. The starting rotation is has been weathering a storm. Kyle Wright had to leave his last start, uh, and thanks to more of the same form that he was dealing with before the season. He got a cortisone injection in his right shoulder, but felt some discomfort in his most recent outing down in Miami. And as it turned out, that was the end of Kyle Wright's start in the third inning there. He didn't retire anybody there. Uh, Rick Kranitz came out, Brian Snicker, the training staff, and the decision was made to go ahead and pull the plug on that start. And after the game, Snit was uh, pretty straightforward with, yeah, we're going to have to put him on the IL. We're going to have to get that calmed down. We're going to have to see where exactly it is. So he's going to continue to be reevaluated. No big updates on what exactly the prognosis is for Kyle Wright other than inflammation, discomfort in that right shoulder. But you got to figure if he's on the injured list again for a couple of weeks, 
You probably need to ramp it back up. You'll be talking about rehab assignment or rehab starts, other things on the steps to just to get to those. You're probably looking at, I mean, minimum about a month or so just to let things calm down and maybe figure out when you can get Kyle right back in there. Would he need another injection? Would it be time for another injection? Not a doctor. Don't play one on TV. Didn't stay at the Holiday Inn Express last night, so can't tell you. But it is disappointing and frustrating, not only for Kyle, but also for the Braves. He was a big part of their rotation. I've said this time and again on calls right here on 92.9 The Game, whether it was with Dukes and Bell, Andy and Randy, Morning Show, whoever it was, I've said, look, Kyle Wright, I feel like, is the glue of this rotation because it's not that he goes out and has the Spencer Strider stuff or that he's got the pedigree of Max Fried in terms of being a Cy Young runner-up, but this dude won 21 games last year, and he did it by being one of the most consistent pitchers in the National League, and he's the only 20-game winner in baseball, but in five starts this year, he hasn't been able to pick up a victory yet, and now it seems like another injury detours what he's dealing with. Now, I was tracking this after the game as well as the Braves went into extras and did beat the Orioles on Sunday thanks to Michael Harris, who I'll get to in a moment. But Max Freed, obviously Friday's start and the seventh inning that Max said afterwards, that that's going to stick with me for a while. You know, he made a couple of errors in that game. Uh, got, gave up a couple of home runs. Those are things you didn't see. He hadn't given up a home run yet this year. And certainly is not a guy who makes a lot of errors as a gold glover. But the Braves, I did notice on the, on the notes and on the website, had to be determined you know, put on the uh, Wednesday, I believe it was, slot against the Boston Red Sox. And then they have not announced a starter for Friday yet in the series that begins in Toronto after the Braves have another off day on Thursday. So it leads you to kind of wonder, what's going on with Max Fried? Well, Mark Bowman of MLB.com, he's a guy who asked those kinds of questions, and he did ask and did not really get much clarity in that from Brian Snitker. Nobody's said anything specific at all, so I, I can't really tell you that, okay, well, this is what's going on, or, hey, do you remember when we saw this? I did not see really any indication in that start other than, you know, clearly the results weren't there that he wanted to in the final inning, but it didn't look like he was pitching through anything that caused him to labor or physically have an issue. But you kind of want to figure out what the prognosis is for Max Fried uh, for the coming week or, you know, whatever may be going on with him, what the timetable for that might be. And I don't want to fearmonger an injury thing, but typically when you kind of get some version of no comment about somebody's physical well-being, in, term, in, in relation to being out there, to being able to go out there and make their start, you do start to kind of wonder. So perhaps we'll find out a little bit more about Max Fried as the evening, as the week rolls on. Of course, as the Braves get back in action on Tuesday in the first of a two game set against the Boston Red Sox. We saw Dylan Dodd come up and pitch in a spot start situation down in Miami. Quality start for him. Didn't miss a lot of bats, but he let the defense do the work and he was able to pick up a win and help the Braves to sweep that series. So maybe we'll see Dylan Dodd. Maybe we'll see Michael Soroka at some point. I think that's kind of been a big question mark. The last couple of starts for him have not really been as sharp as the first few starts were for him, or at least a couple that uh, followed his first one. His first one was kind of a shortened outing. Uh, but eight earned run, or eight runs, I believe seven of them earned, two starts ago. Three more earned runs in four innings last time out. About 77 pitches, if I remember, on the box score. Not exactly the numbers that you're expecting, but if the stuff's there and they feel like he's ready, Maybe he needs one more start down in Gwinnett to kind of figure that whole thing out, and maybe the Braves are going to be, without Kyle Wright, trying to figure out where Michael Soroka could fit into those plans. It's certainly a piece of that puzzle to steal that analogy yet again. Michael Harris II came back after, after 19 games on the injured list thanks to that back issue. Then he had suffered an injury scare over the, over the week in uh, Miami, or, or last week in Miami, tumbling over the first base bag. Thankfully, he's okay, and really big time. Thankfully, he's okay because he came through with a game when he hit for the Braves on Sunday against Baltimore. 
And you also had in that Miami series a little bit of an injury scare with Ronald Acuna Jr., his second one of the week, because he got plunked with a high fastball in the doubleheader against the Mets in Game 2. Got back into the lineup, though. But then in Wednesday's game against Miami, he fouled the ball off of his foot, or excuse me, off of his left leg, and had to leave that game. So you were kind of worried about what exactly could be going on with, uh, with Ronald as far as that's concerned. It didn't cause him to miss a bunch of time. He's been out there. He's been durable. He's been doing the things that Ronald Acuna Jr. does. That's get on base, drive and run, steal bases, hit home runs, throw runners out. He had a throw on Sunday. My goodness. I don't know if there's a better outfield arm right now. And it may just be because I'm too close to the situation and I just see too much Ronald Acuna Jr. And I go look at his stat cast and it's got him at, I think, the 100th percentile in uh, arm strength. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's just the fact that this guy pretty much does it all and is, is the inside track, at least from where I'm sitting, on National League MVP here in the early going. And congratulations to Ronald since we last talked. He was an April Player of the Month in the National League, so he's done a lot of things right. But a couple of injury scares down in Miami. Thankfully, you got both those guys back. Michael Harris, having him back out in center field is a big deal for the Braves from a defensive perspective, letting Mike get really comfortable again at the plate. He's going to have those moments. He showed it on Sunday. He just missed a three-run homer early in the game. And it took him all the way back to the wall before that ball was dragged in, and maybe we wouldn't have had to play 12 innings, but when it came down to it, Michael Harris came through with the big hit, the one that the Braves needed. As far as injuries are concerned, one other before we get out of here for this segment and continue on with the show, but Travis Darno has begun a rehab assignment, and I've gotten so many questions about Travis Darno in the past couple of weeks because you know he's been down for about a month now since suffering that concussion in that home plate collision with Rugnet Odor of the Padres. That was the very first home series of the year. So you go back and think about how much the Braves have had to do without Travis Darno. Hey, tip of the cap to Sean Murphy, who's caught just about every game. And Chadwick Tromp's been up helping him out some too. But Sean Murphy has been durable behind the plate. He's been the driving force in the middle of the order for the Braves as well. But you want to get Travis Darno back. He's played two games down in Triple A Gwinnett. He caught five innings in the first one on Friday. He DH'd on Saturday. I'm sure the Braves are going to reassess him heading into the week and see if he's ready to rejoin the club as soon as uh, Tuesday's game against the Boston Red Sox. So that's a good update for you, and we'll have a lot more Braves updates as we continue on here on From the Diamond. But when we come back, we're going to jump into something I think is going to be an awful lot of fun, and that's a little baseball card chat, a little hobby chat, and we're going to discuss uh, a baseball card icon in Dick Perez and a brand-new documentary about him, the man that gave us the Don Russ Diamond Kings I'm going to chat with Ryan Fagan of the Sporting News all about that, and it's coming up next right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more From the Diamond with Graham McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Graham McCauley with you from the Kia Studios here on a Sunday evening. And one thing that interests me when I talk baseball is talking baseball cards. It's something I have done since, uh, gosh, the mid-80s, which is fortuitous timing because there was an awful lot of baseball cards being produced back in the decade of the 80s, and it kind of lit the fuse for my love of collecting, which carries right on in through today. And I know that's true of my next guest, Ryan Fagan of the Sporting News. Uh, you have been, I think, chasing cardboard about as long as I have, I would imagine. Yes, I got bit by the bug back in the late 80s. 87 Tops was the one that really kind of yep. stuck with me. So I didn't collect all the way through there. You know, I took a, a break. You know, you go to college, and there are different things on your yeah. mind. But kind of got back into it about 2018, 2019, something like that. It's been cool because there's a nice mix of that nostalgia that you can still get into and mm-hmm. the, the new stuff that you can still get into. So 
it's been an interesting time in the hobby. There's no doubt about that. No, for sure. I like to say there's no wrong way to collect, but I do have to wonder how it is people <laughs> enjoy some of the ways that they collect. I mean, you know, we had the junk wax era, I guess that it was right. called in the 1980s and all the way in through the 90s. Now there's a lot more premium product. That wasn't necessarily the case back then, but it brings me to a really interesting conversation because you got to sit down with somebody who I would call a hobby icon, an industry icon, Absolutely. if you will. So let's jump into our way back machines. It's 1980. Tops is having its final year as the only name in baseball card collecting. And then two new uh, companies come on the scene, Don Russ and Fleer. And we finally have some options as collectors. And I've gone back and I've picked up a lot of these early 80 sets now that I'm spending more than my allowance on baseball cards. <laughs> but I would say that it was a pivotal time in the hobby just to get some new names, some new blood and some new designs in, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. It was a changing time. You know, they had tried to break into the Topps Monopoly for a long time, mm -hmm. um, which I didn't mean to use Monopoly now that Prism is putting out basketball cards <laughs> with Monopoly. That was a, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, you know, they, they basically sued for the right to do it mm -hmm. um, and they got the licenses and the, the 1981 products when both Donruss and Fleer debuted, they felt a little rushed, right? Yeah. There, there are a lot of errors in both products. Back then, it seemed like it was a bad thing, but now it's kind of looked at as almost this, you know, oh, that's a good job, guys. You know, way to go. Let's get it better next year. So sure. People almost like it. It's an endearment thing. So, yeah, they brought the hobby a couple of new brands in 1981. They both had gum in their in their products that year, and Tops won that argument. It says, you can't have gum. We're the only gum. So Donner started putting in puzzle pieces in mm -hmm. 1982, and Fleer started doing the stickers in yep. 1982. They're kind of feeling each other out, but it was definitely a time when kind of a, a predecessor to the boom that the hobby experienced in terms of volume of how many things were produced uh, really starting in 86 and 87. Yeah, I know a lot of people love the high-end stuff that the hobby has become largely these days, but back then it wasn't necessarily about high-end. It was about maybe right. trying to have that personal collection of a particular player and getting all of the different variations that were put out that year. And I guess that maybe hasn't changed for a lot of collectors these days, but 1982 started to kind of usher that in in a new way because second-year Donruss, that issue included a subset inside of the complete set known as Diamond Kings. And that's where artist Dick Perez entered the hobby lexicon. How did he come to find work as an artist creating portraits for baseball cards? Because it sounds like a really niche gig, doesn't it? It, it is, you know, and he started doing baseball paintings in, in other ways. He didn't start with, you know, Donners. Obviously they came to him and sure. said, you know, you're an established guy. We want you to do this. But he has probably, I want to say this officially, but he has probably painted more about baseball history than probably anyone else wow. out there. You know, he's done a lot of stuff for the Hall of Fame. He's done a lot of stuff for different teams. You know, and it's kind of crazy to think that this is a guy who, you know, was born in Puerto Rico, lost his dad at age five and at age six, his mom just sent him on a plane to New York and said, you're gonna meet some relatives. And he said, how am I gonna know who they are? And she said, they'll know your name, right? And from that beginning, he, you know, becomes this, you know, use the term icon. Mm -hmm earlier and i 100 percent agree with that there's a short list of icons in the hobby dick perez even though everybody may not know his name they know his work yes right they know when you were sifting through a pack of donors and you got a diamond king this portrait or this painting it was cool right mm -hmm. because you wanted to see who they would choose and who mm -hmm. would be your favorite team as representative there and you know and he did such a good job of choosing those he and his partner prank Steele of choosing the players and doing different types of variations, different styles of painting through the years. It really was a cool thing each year to see what the new Diamond Kings would look like. 
Chatting with Ryan Fagan of the Sporting News here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He joins me on the wadeford.com hotline, and you just kind of got into some things I really am curious about as somebody who's collected as long as I have because I need to know what the process was for selecting each year's Diamond Kings because it always seemed to bring more new players than repeats, that's for sure. And I asked him about that because I was curious the same thing. Did Donruss tell you these are the guys you have to do? Essentially, Donruss had nothing to do with it. Right? Okay. They printed the cards and that was it they said you know you can pick whoever you want you know there were no rules about picking guys two years in a row although he had kind of his own rules right he didn't want to repeat players too often but some guys could not be denied right especially on certain teams where there was like a superstar Mm -hmm. and not a lot else Mm -hmm. you know he said that first year they were trying to do it one of the tough teams was the toronto blue jays because the blue jays were going through a rough stretch and he said you know he and frank Steele were looking at the roster trying to figure out who was going to be and they didn't know who most of these people were. And like, we know who John Mayberry is, so we're going to paint him, you know, and they would start the process basically in the first half of the prior year. And they would choose players and he would start some of the paintings of guys that he knew would be in there. You know, some years he would have like in his mind an idea what the background would be. You know, in some years he would change kind of the styles of how he did it. Some of the early years had like a tiny picture of the player in his stance mm-hmm. and then a bigger portraiture of the player's head. And he would just kind of do literally whatever he wanted. Donner said, basically, give us the paintings on time and you can do anything else you want with it, which, you know, kind of surprised me. Mm-hmm. You know, we know like in today's modern, you know, era with, with tops and Panini, like there's so much regulation. Yeah, there's no so much chance. of how we're going to do this this way. We're going to have these, 25 different parallels now really Mm -hmm. 60 some odd parallels with some of these cards it it, it was not like that donner said you are the premier baseball you know painter in this world do literally anything you want that was kind of interesting to me well anybody who's done anything creative and you reach a certain level and the door opens up for you and they say hey you've got carte blanche to do this exactly how you want to do this you know the way that you want to do it as long as it comes in by a particular time i mean that's Right. It's a rare creative air, if you will. Now, Diamond King's initial run, I read this in your article, 1982 to 1996. Um, yeah. It had to evolve over the years creatively. I think you just kind of touched on that, some of the different stylings and whatnot. What did Perez focus on as he moved through the years and tried to keep the line fresh, relevant, however he was kind of framing it in his mind? You know, one of the things along those lines that was interesting to me is he wasn't taking, like, a picture of a player and painting that. He would take different pictures and combine them and for him that was about making it art that wasn't making it a reproduction in his mind art was something the artist creates so mm-hmm. he would take maybe he'd see a picture of a guy with a, a certain facial expression but the body wasn't the way he wanted to have the painting so he would take you know the body of somebody else that was similar and then the head and kind of use that in i think it was 1991 he started doing more like full body things and the one that always sticks out to me is you know barry bonds you know there's a full barry bond batting stance in there and so i specifically i was like why did you do that like was it something about bonds he said honestly you get bored right i got a little (laughs) bored with the way things have been so i wanted to do something different you know and i think that's a lot of it he just was trying to while he's putting out these very popular sets he's also trying to grow as an artist Mm -hmm. to try different things part of it again because it comes back to donner was happy with literally everything he did you know so they didn't care and 
So it would be sometimes he would change the size of the player in the picture. Sometimes it would be different backgrounds. You know, he got very creative with some of the backgrounds in the 90s towards the end of the run. Mm -hmm. You know, I asked him what his favorite one ever was. And he said it was a Chili Davis from 1994. Okay. Chili Davis wasn't necessarily his favorite player, but he loved the way that the the image that he had. He's like, I can't even tell you why. He's like, I did others in that year that were similar he's like there's just something about that chili davis card that really stood out to me is and he didn't even hesitate when i asked him his favorite wow. that was absolutely it yeah. wow and when you think about the dozens and dozens well, probably hundreds at that point of, yeah. of portraits that he had painted which brings me to a very interesting question as i chat with ryan fagan of the sporting news here on from the diamond with grant mccauley on sports radio 92.9 the game you know what happened to all of the original pieces of art that he painted i mean i have a list of questions down here but as we're talking it just it dawned on me what do you do with all of these once they're completed? Are they the property of Don Russ? Do individual collectors buy them? Like what happens to the original art itself? You know, that is something I did not ask him. I know just from looking and seeing pictures of his studio, he still has a lot of stuff, okay. right? He's not somebody that's going to throw things oh, away. Right. Um, he's got a website. He's got a lot of the stuff on there. I wonder if he sells them. I honestly don't know that question. I mean, that would be, if you want to own a piece of baseball card history to have an original, it would be really cool. Yeah, I could make a space on my wall for that 1987 Don Russ <laughs> Dale Murphy Diamond Kings if he wants to go, go ahead and let that one go from his collection. <laughs> a couple of other questions about this. Then I want to get to the documentary that you just mentioned. As we moved into the early 90s, Don Russ made the Diamond Kings more of a chase card. They created the insert yeah. set. It moved out of the regular set. And, and the hobby was offering more premium cards at that time, so inserts were all the rage. How did Perez view this shift and seeing his work now kind of be spread out a little bit more and perhaps creating a more sought-after item for collectors? I got the impression that he didn't think a whole lot about it at the time. Uh-huh. But now looking back, right, because it was 1992 was the first year that it moved from a subset to an insert set. And it was a special card, right? I mean, they gave it a good treatment. It mm-hmm. wasn't on the same card stock. It was a little more. It was, it was glossy. more glossy than, yeah, than the, the regular 1992 set. Um, but I think the decision to make the Diamond Kings kind of one of their signature insert cards, a chase card, if you will, was a good choice because it was still something that people wanted. And when I asked him about it, he said, kind of looking back, you know, because he collected cards when he was a mm-hmm. kid growing up in New York. He, Mickey Mantle was his favorite player. He always wanted that. And he said it wasn't about chasing these specific special limited cards it was about chasing your favorite player you trade you know two of your non-favorite player to get one of your favorite player and that was part of it he's like so i'm a little sad that i contributed to a commodity that's the word he used he said i'm sorry to say that i'm also part of the era that made cards a commodity rather than the joy of collecting them so you know he laughed when he was saying that he wasn't like super sad because it was the industry was going in that direction anyway but he was you know certainly part of that early wave of insert sets that people wanted. Well, the industry has gone a lot of different ways in our lifetime alone. What brought about the end of Diamond Kings in Don Russ in the 1990s? I think at a certain point, it had just kind of run its course. You know, Don Russ changed a lot of things the way they did. You know, Don Russ is a company, you know, there's still Don Russ cards produced today, but they're produced by Panini after the company went under. Uh, I think Don Russ struggled a lot to kind of maintain its footing in, in that era. You know, in the 96 set was the last one they had the Diamond Kings. And by that point, I had kind of checked out a little bit. So I wasn't as up on them. By then, I think the last real Donner's cards I had I bought back in the day were probably 93s, maybe a little bit of 94. Because 94 was when they went to the full color, completely glossy image with the gold stamps. And that, that was, you remember, the gold stamping of everything was gold foil embossed, right? You know, uh-huh. every collector loved and hated that idea. 
But yeah, you know, I think it, it just kind of run its time. You know, I mean, 15 years is a, a long, amazing run really for any sort of trend or element of the hobby. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that that's kind of just what it happened. Well, wrapping up here with Ryan Fagan of the Sporting News, who talked to baseball hobby icon, baseball card hobby industry icon, Dick Perez, the artist of all those wonderful Diamond Kings cards that if you collected in the 80s and 90s, you certainly had to have had the joy of pulling one of these out of a pack. I want you to tell me a little bit about this documentary process, because for those of us who grew up in what is commonly referred to as the junk wax era, with limited subsets and no premium releases to speak of until the early 90s, the Diamond King itself became an iconic piece of the hobby. Yeah, you know, Mark Evans is the filmmaker who decided to do this. He, he was opening some old packs with his son, and his son was like, oh, this is a cool card, so he wanted to know more about it. So Evans basically just reached out to Perez and said, you open to the idea of doing something. And, mm-hmm. You know, he told me it's within a very short time period, he realized that it could be a full feature film length type of documentary because his story was so interesting. You know, he said, you know, as a, a filmmaker, you go in, okay, is this going to be a short? Is this going to be 45 minutes? And mm-hmm. he realized there was a lot there. And part of it, you know, what we talked about earlier, the, the story of just how he got to New York, right? How he, he became interested in baseball. You know, mm-hmm. he was a kid who didn't speak English. Basically, he told me the way that you learned about the culture was baseball. You know, kids wow. played stickball, yep. you know, in the streets in Manhattan and Harlem where he lived. You know, I mean, that, that's what you learned, you know, and Mickey Mantle. He loved watching Mickey Mantle because, you know, he was the the American dream, mm-hmm. the blonde hair, blue eyed guy. And even though that's not what America is, that's kind of was the picture of Americana back then. So he identified with him and he collected Mickey Mantle cards. You know, he told me he doesn't think he had a 1952 Tops so he doesn't have a, my mom threw out this million dollar okay. card story, but he said he did have, I think the one he described to me looked, sounded like a 1951 Bowman, wow. which would have been a cool mantle card to have too. But yeah, so the, the documentary is kind of just about his whole life. you know. And I think it's going to be a really cool thing. Right now they're doing a Kickstarter campaign, which they just launched on May 1st to try to basically get the funding to finish it. They've got a lot of the interviews with Perez, you know, and there are a lot of folks in this, a documentary that, that people will know. But they're looking to just get the cost to, to do some more interviews, some more of the post-production stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of cool things that they have along with, I sound like I'm giving a commercial here, but <laughs> a lot of the cool things they got with the Kickstarter. And the biggest yeah. thing, I think, is the card set of the new paintings that Perez did. It's a lot of old players like Mantle and Rudy Mantle and Jackie Robinson. I think Josh Gibson is in there. But Very then cool. it's also some of the the newer players like Judge and Otani and Julio Rodriguez, I think Mike Trout's on there too. And that's limited to like 499 sets. So, you know, even though Perez wasn't too thrilled looking back about being part of the first chase sets, he's certainly jumping on that now because I think that that would be pretty cool once those cards are produced and, and start hitting eBay. Absolutely. It should be very interesting to see how that all plays out. And, you know, as we know and we're familiar with, it's just kind of a little piece of nostalgia that really connects to the baseball card hobby as it became to be known in the big boom of the 1980s and 1990s. It may have produced a lot of cards that our kids and kids' kids will still be opening because there's so many of them out there. But anytime you pull a (laughs) Diamond King, I think it's always pretty fun. Ryan, I appreciate all your time today, and I look forward to chatting with you about some baseball cards again sometime down the road. Sounds good. Thanks, Grant. He's Ryan Fagan of The Sporting News. Make sure you check out that article on Dick Perez, and make sure you check out that documentary as well. I'll link all of that stuff on Twitter so you'll be able to find it there. When we come back, we will dive back into what else is happening around the world of baseball, and we'll do it next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Take a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. 
And welcome back in. It is Hour 2 from the Diamond with Grant McCauley from the Kia Studios in Midtown right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Thanks for making me part of your Sunday evening. And I hope you make From the Diamond part of your baseball podcast regimen. And I hope you have a baseball podcast regimen. Goodness knows I do. From the Diamond is available wherever you get your podcast on the Odyssey app. That's that's the elevator pitch right there. Go find it if you need any links to anything. From the Diamond.com will have them for you. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'll be happy to uh, send you direct links if that's really what you need. At Grant McCauley is where you can find me. Now, we're going to go around the big leagues and discuss some of the other things happening across the baseball world and what was a very eventful week. I like to pick a few stories that just kind of jump off the page to me. And one that has jumped off the page, I think, way back since the first week of April is... Are the St. Louis Cardinals really this bad? And the answer is to be determined, but they're off to one of the worst starts that they have been out on in recent years. In fact, so much so that I almost wonder, did the Cardinals and the Pirates switch uniforms and just not tell anybody? Because the Pirates are playing a good brand of baseball, and I'm not knocking the Pittsburgh Pirates. It is a good story. I love seeing teams kind of have it all come together for them and get on a good run. Now, can it last for 162? That's the great test. But for the Cardinals... You're just not used to seeing, at least I'm not, a team that has that kind of pedigree and a team that's, you know, and the Braves have met this club in the postseason. They're always in it. They're always around. They're always competitive. They take a lot of pride in putting a winning product out on the club or out on the field, rather, a winning club. This has not been the year for this group, most certainly. And the strangest change I think that I've seen in all of this is over the winter, the Cardinals who are off to an 11-24 and start. That's after a win on Sunday. It has just not been good. Worst start in the National League. Um, they decided to take their big offseason acquisition because, you know, Yadier Molina retired. Some people around these parts might not mind that too much because Molina was kind of a maligned character at times, particularly in that 2019 NLDS, but I'll leave that for another day. Molina meant a lot to the Cardinals for a long time. He helped lead their pitching staff. He was a multiple-time gold glove catcher, and some people believe, some people that he's a Hall of Fame candidate, and we'll see what happens. But they decided to go out and sign another all-star catcher to replace the one that they were losing. So they went out and signed Wilson Contreras, the older brother of William Contreras, who we know very well from around these parts. Well, Wilson Contreras pretty much looks like himself at the plate. He's batting 280, a couple of home runs, uh, weighted run created plus, well over almost 120. He's hitting pretty well. And it's something else must be going on because the news broke on Saturday that the Cardinals are now going to move Contreras out from behind the plate. He's not going to catch anymore. Now, this comes after you gone, have gone out and signed this guy to a five-year, $87.75 million contract to be your new catcher. Now, notwithstanding the fact that he's going to have to go learn a new position because he's not an everyday outfielder, and I don't think you're going to be putting him at first base at the moment because you got some guy named Goldschmidt there. You've already got a little bit of a crowded outfield situation, which we can talk about or not talk about. I don't know that's really germane to this, but the question is, why exactly is Wilson Contreras being moved out from behind the plate? So after the big discussion happened that, hey, he's not catching anymore, he's going to play the outfield. Well, John Mazalik, who's the president of baseball operations for the Cardinals, came out and said, whoa, 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 not so fast. He's not going to play the outfield, actually. He's just going to DH, unless there's some sort of emergency. That's the direct quote there. Obviously, the Cardinals were used to Molina behind the plate for close to two decades. The nuances of that position may be very subtle, and what a lot of our pitchers were used to and what they're seeing and what we're seeing, I guess, is a lack of confidence. Boy, you sunk $88 million into this guy. So lack of confidence in the first week of May? I mean, sometimes, you know, it's just going to be different when you go from one player to another. And, and I know that 20 years is a long time, so don't get me wrong, because we don't see too many guys, too many players 
that's been their whole career in one uniform anymore, let alone just in one town for that long. So I get it. I understand it. I guess I'm just kind of wondering how in the world did everything go so sour so quickly. But if you look at the Cardinals, I mean, they're in the bottom, I think, five in ERA in all of baseball, and that's not the end-all, be-all stat, but you'd rather have a good one than a bad one. And they've got a pretty bad one. They've had Adam Wainwright on the shelf for quite a while. He just came back over the weekend. But they've decided that they're going to go with a little bit of a catching committee, bringing up some guys from the minor leagues and I guess trying to uh, just patchwork it all together with the backups that they have in-house and maybe revisit the Contreras thing down the line. Maybe he works his way back behind the plate. But I guess I'm just curious how you go out and sign an all-star catcher from your rival, no less, the Chicago Cubs. You pay him handsomely because he is a catcher and you're paying kind of that premium for that position. And now you might just DH him. And he's not a bad hitter, but he's not the kind of hitter that I would drop $90 million on, and that's just me. So uh, be that as it may, that's where the Cardinals are right now in addition to that 11-24 and start, which I don't expect them to say mired under 500 by 12, 13 games all season long, though for a lot of Braves fans it wouldn't hurt their feelings at all. But it's been an odd, odd start to the season for the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, Philly star Bryce Harper made his return to the lineup on Tuesday. 160 days after undergoing Tommy John surgery on his right elbow. That happened last November. That is the quickest documented return from Tommy John surgery in MLB history. Now, he's coming back to DH, mind you. He's not coming back to be on the mound. So there's a lot of difference in you know some of the return dates for that kind of thing. And we know Shohei Otani was hitting while dealing with an elbow injury a couple of years ago. But Tommy John surgery to be back in 160 days, pretty impressive. Uh, Bryce Harper sat down with Ken Rosenthal as well prior to his return uh, just this past week. It was on Tuesday to a very struggling Phillies club. This is what Harper had to say about setting the timetable to be back so soon and surprising a lot of people by doing so. Bryce, when you first set your goal of returning in May, what kind of reaction did you get from your doctors and the team? Um, I mean, I didn't really say anything to anybody. Uh, I think the f- first time I said it really was to Scott um, a little bit after surgery we were talking and he's like hey you know it's going to take some time for you to get back and I said yeah I understand that um, but you know I just want to put a goal in my head to kind of push forward with that you know or for, push towards that um, and if that wouldn't have happened I mean then I want to be back right um, but at the same time I wanted to understand that my good days I could push myself a little bit more and then also when I had the bad days I'd take a couple extra days off and understand what I needed to do and um, I had a great surgeon that did what he needed to do with my arm and then I had an unbelievable physical therapist and Tim Soder back home uh, who got me through you know each day um, even days where I was kind of you know grinding or not feeling good um, he pushed me to, to get better that day and same thing with my trainer um, Elliot and my other trainer Nikki I mean they all kind of pushed me each day when I was in Vegas to to be ready for spring training and get in front of the eyes of the Phillies and um, and get going so well, that's exactly what he's done. That was Bryce Harper talking with Ken Rosenthal on Tuesday as he made it back to a struggling Phillies club. They snapped a six-game losing streak on Sunday, 15-19, and 19, though, to start the year. Uh, Harper homered on Saturday, his first one since coming back. It's going to make a difference. A club without Reese Hoskins, slow start from Trey Turner, pitching staff that really hasn't been able to deliver in the way that it wants to. Uh, the Phillies, there's a lot of baseball left to be played, and they showed last year. They can get hot at the right time. Having Bryce Harper back, that's a big piece of that puzzle. Now, here's something bizarre. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Tampa Bay Rays in just a few minutes when Neil Solons of the Rays Radio Network joins me. But uh, the umpires in a game on Tuesday between the, excuse me, on Thursday between the Rays and the Pirates decided to have a little visit with Zach Eflin, who made the start for Tampa Bay, and asked him to remove the rubberized ring, not from his pitching hand, but from his glove hand. 
before the start of the second inning. They had a conference on the mound. Kevin Cash, the manager of the Rays, was out there. Eflin said the umpiring crews that he had encountered before this, they understood it. You know, he's married. It's his wedding ring. It's the one he wears out on the field. It's inside of his glove hand, but you know, there's all those little check downs that they do in between innings where you got to take your glove off and do all those things. I guess they just weren't comfortable in him having anything on his hands to the letter of the law of MLB's rules. Let's hear Zach Eflin's take on exactly what was going on out there and what he was told because the penalty for not removing that ring apparently well, it wasn't death, but it would have been the end of that day. It was the first crew that's really given me trouble about taking the ring off. Um, I've told every umpire that's asked me to take it off, I said, hey, look, I respect what you guys do, but I'm going to keep it on. It's very important to me, and most umpires are, are cool with it, and you know they'll kind of let MLB take care of it if they need to. Um, but this, this umpire crew is kind of a little different. Um, they seemed a little on edge, but you know it's, it's part of it. Um, I really, uh, I said, if, if you're going to eject me out of the game, then I'll, I'll take it off. And that's what they ended up coming out and telling me on the mound was that they're going to toss me out of the game if I didn't uh, take off my rubber ring. So um, I took it off. What are you going to do? I mean, I understand. Look, it's a thankless job to be an umpire. I know that I like to get all over them. I've been asking for robots to call balls and strikes for a few years, and I haven't been particularly shy about that. I don't know if it's going to work out great. But I want to try it out just to see if it does because some of these strike zones don't work out so great on a nightly basis. But now that they have these little pat-downs and check-downs that they're doing for, to look for sticky substances or foreign substances that aid in pitching, I guess that this is one of the things. You can't have a rubber ring on your glove hand, inside your glove, while you're pitching in a baseball game. But it didn't stop Zach Eflin. He tossed seven scoreless innings. Uh, the Rays swept the Pirates with a 3-2 win on Thursday Eflin, if you're curious, has been wearing that ring since the start of the 2021 season. He put it in his pocket at first and later put it on his necklace. So I guess there is a way to have that out there. But what a bizarre turn of events. Just the kind of thing that, like, look, nobody's asking to to police uh, this kind of thing. A couple of other stories before we get out of here from around the big leagues. How about a great comeback story? I love one of these. And, you know, uh, Liam Hendricks is writing himself a pretty good one. He's the all-star reliever for the White Sox. Uh, Come back to beat cancer and return to the mound for AAA Charlotte, the affiliate of the Sox in Gwinnett against the Stripers this week. Uh, Hendricks pitched a perfect inning in his first rehab appearance since his January cancer diagnosis, and obviously for everyone involved, that's an emotional moment. He finished his chemotherapy treatment back on April the 5th uh, and shared not long after that on April the 20th that he was cancer-free. Clearly, that was just a couple of weeks ago, so he was able to ramp up his baseball activities and get himself out on a rehab assignment. He was congratulated uh, by the Cool Ray Field PA announcement and the broadcast teams. And I want you to hear a little bit of this because the three-time All-Star, he was obviously enjoying an emotional moment in his return to the mound. Big-time congratulations to Liam Hendricks for his comeback, and hopefully he'll be finding himself pitching in the big leagues before too long. Again, what a great moment. Love a great comeback. As far as comebacks are concerned, though, not going to be one, it doesn't look like, for Matt Harvey. He's been looking for one for a couple of years. He pitched in the World Baseball Classic this year. He, of course, rose to fame about a decade ago, uh, dubbed the the Dark Knight as he was pitching, leading the New York Mets pitching staff uh, with what looked to be a career that was going to take off, was going to go places, was going to make him one of the best pitchers in baseball. And for a brief moment, you know, he was that shining star, if you will, and, and injuries and uh, inconsistency and a lot of other things kind of uh, conspired against him and his career uh, really hit the skids a couple a few years ago. He signed with the Orioles two years ago, really got knocked around, uh, just trying to keep it going. The fastball was no longer there. Um, and Harvey, though, he posted this decision to retire on Instagram and shared a photo from way back in April 2013 uh, with the New York Mets and always, I'm sure, looked back fondly on those, though his time in New York kind of ended 
under not the greatest of terms. But uh, as you look at it, you know, by and large, from Matt Harvey, a pretty good career, some great moments, but you always kind of have to wonder. And there are these players, these athletes that you can look at, I think, in all sports and say, wow, what if that guy had stayed healthy? What would his career have looked like? I think Matt Harvey is probably one of those guys. Well, that's what's going on around the big leagues here uh, for the week that was. I uh, do want to throw out happy birthday to Willie Mays, turned 92, and condolences to the family and to the Oakland Athletics Organization for Vita Blue, uh, the great pitcher who passed away at 73 on Sunday. When we come back, we're going to get the inside scoop on one of the best teams in baseball. They're the Tampa Bay Rays. We'll hear from Neil Solons of the Rays Radio Network. That is next. Is from the Diamond with Grant McCauley continues here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday evening as we wrap up a very busy week across the world of baseball. And now we're going to expand our horizons and see what else has been happening across MLB. As we take a look around the rest of the world of baseball, the Braves are off to a hot start here in Atlanta, but no team in baseball got off to a hotter start than the Tampa Bay Rays. And they've rolled into the month of May with the best record in all of MLB. And to talk about what exactly has been going right, which has been a lot of stuff for the Tampa Bay Rays, <laughs> is Neil Solons of the Rays Radio Network. He's a pre- and post-game host, a good friend of mine from a long, long time ago when I was in the Rays minor league system as a play-by-play guy myself. So, Neil, great to chat with you, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about a Rays team that has kind of taken the baseball world by storm. It's been amazing, and I appreciate you having me on, Grant. Hard to fathom what this group has done, yeah. um, but we're enjoying it for sure. Yeah, and you got to enjoy it when everything kind of comes together. I think that was the old saying from the A-team, Hannibal, wasn't it? I love it when a plan <laughs> comes together. I don't know that the Rays roster could have come together in much of a better way than it has. They exploded out of the gate with the best start in baseball, as we talked about. So I guess there's kind of an obvious question here, and we'll extrapolate on a lot of the things that happened, but how exactly are the Rays doing this to this level anyway? Well, I mean, they've been great in every facet of the game. I mean, through the first, what, 32 games of the year when they were 26-6, and they were the team that allowed the fewest runs and scored the most. They hit the most homers and allowed the least. Um, and they're defending really well, um, and they're stealing bases. Uh, I I think they were fifth or sixth in the, in the league in stolen bases too. So you add it all up, they're running the bases well, they're defending well, they're pitching well, um, and they're hitting home runs and scoring. So, I mean, it's hard not to understand once you look at the numbers, why, but if, if you would have told me at the beginning of the year, they'd be doing that, this, I probably would have said, I'm a little bit surprised. Yeah, and they're doing all of it so well, to your point. And it seems like, at least to me, you know, when we started talking about over the winter, we're hearing about new rules, not just the pitch clock, but also banning of the shift, changing of things that teams had started to use over the last at least decade or two to really up their game. And the Rays were kind of at the forefront of that. So it sounded like a lot of folks might have pointed to Tampa Bay and said, let's see how they do with some of these rules changes. And they honestly look better than ever. So what has the focus been on adjusting to things like the shift limitation and stuff that the Rays have kind of incorporated into their daily routine? I kind of thought that the rules were going to help the Rays when I saw what they were doing. And and the reason I felt that way was, A, if you look at last year, the Rays were in the bottom 10 in Major League Baseball in shifts. Mm -hmm. For all the talk about how the Rays were more progressive in their shifts, they actually shifted less last year. I thought they had more athletic defenders than most teams. And because of the limitations defensively, I thought the Rays would be able to better take advantage of that. I also felt 
that over time they had acquired more hitters who make contact and were athletic too. And I figured that would play itself out. Probably the biggest surprise is that the Rays lead the majors in home runs right yeah. now um, and by a pretty good margin. Um, and, and I think a lot of that is, you know, we've talked about on our broadcast is that um, some sometimes guys get a year older and sometimes they get a year better. And I think in this case, there were a lot of young players who got a year older and a year better. And at least to this point, that's been the case. And hopefully it continues. Yeah. And there's no substitute for experience, I think, for young players as they start to not only get to the major leagues, but then, you know, the hard job is now you got to try to stay there. What are you doing to up your game? What are you doing to create consistency in your game? Is there anyone in particular, and maybe there's a few, I mean, with a start like this, I wouldn't imagine that it wouldn't be quite a few players, but anybody that surprised you with maybe a step forward or a leap forward that they've taken here in 2023? I don't know if I would say major, major surprise. I think the biggest piece is health, Um, and that means an awful lot. If you look at last year's position players, up the middle, the group of Kevin Kiermeyer, Mike Zanino, Wander Franco, Brandon Lau played an exact total of 12 games together. That's your catcher, your second baseman, your shortstop, yeah. your center fielder. And, and and Brandon Lau and Wander Franco have been extremely healthy. And by and large, other than a, a two-and-a-half-week stint on the injured list by Jose Siri, all of the position player group has been healthy. And I think with a healthy Wander Franco, with a healthy Brandon Lau, with a healthy Randy Rosarena, those guys are the core of your lineup. And then it shifts everyone down in the lineup to where I think there's less pressure on those guys. And I think because of that, it's allowed guys to relax. It's allowed guys to produce. And hence, you're seeing the amazing results that you have through the first five or six weeks of the season. We're chatting with Neil Solons of the Rays Radio Network. He's their pre- and post-game host, good friend of mine for a long time. He joins me here on the waitfor.com hotline on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Uh, if you've watched the Rays as long as I have, then you know that they are very good at developing players. But every once in a while, you bring along a player that just sets the, the bar very high for expectations. I think, uh, well, over a decade ago now, well over a decade, it was Evan Longoria who was kind of that centerpiece it would appear that that mantle now belongs to a gentleman named Wander Franco. What are you seeing out of him this year? Because I know he's signed there. He's going to be there for a long time. That creates consistency and continuity for what you're building because you are building around a, a young budding star player like that. What is Wander Franco doing here in 2023 that's kind of elevating his game and maybe showing the baseball world exactly how good he is? Well, I, I think the first thing is health. And I think when he got injured twice last year, first it was leg injuries, then it was a fractured handmate. Uh, it, it really was the first time he had to go through this, an extensive period of time where he missed a significant amount of time during a year. And I thought he went into the offseason extremely motivated. The Rays went and visited him during the offseason. They kept track of what he could do during the offseason, which, remember, they couldn't do the year before because of the yeah. lockout. So that was a major change. And and I think when I saw him come into uh, spring training, especially because he was playing in the WBC, um, I thought that helped him as well. I thought he was motivated for that. I thought he was motivated uh, for what had happened the year before. And I, I think I saw someone who was a little bit leaner, a little bit quicker. I think his defense has always been good, but it's been superlative to this point in time. He has a great understanding of the internal clock of who's running when and how much he needs to get on a throw. Mm-hmm. He's stealing bases because his legs are healthy. Um, and, and beyond that, he's got some of the most supreme back-to-ball skills you could you can have in the game. Uh, and he's now starting to develop his power. So, I mean, he's got the ability to be a five-tool guy, an MVP candidate, similar to a Ronald Acuna. 
um, you know, similar to some of the core players Atlanta has. And, and I think in the same light, Wander is blossoming. And again, if he stays healthy, he's going to be one of the better players in this league. Yeah, and we're going to get into, I think, some of the parallels between what the Braves have been and are and what the Rays certainly are showing the baseball world this year with the style of play that they have and the depth of lineup that they have most certainly. And I know the Rays have had some home run threats over the years. Just about every team does. The home run's kind of the central focus, I think, of offenses in baseball. And maybe that's why we're seeing some of the rules changes to kind of you know elevate and, and utilize some different parts of the game to maybe become, you know, I don't know, more entertaining, more well-rounded, whatever the case is, bring back the stolen base, whatever it may be. But this year's team, as you pointed out, most powerful Rays team I've ever seen. How did that come about? Because it's not like all of these guys are household names when it comes to top sluggers in the game, but it just seems like everybody is chipping in. They're all chipping in because there's a depth of the lineup with the health of Wander and Brandon and and um, and Randy Rosarena. Um, you know, people forget that Brandon Lau two years ago when he was healthy had 39 homers and 99 RBIs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that Wander is still 22 years of age and that Randy Rosarena has been a 2020 guy each of the last two years. So, you know, you have a core there where you've got three guys who probably should hit 20. And mm-hmm. um, in some cases, one of them should hit 30 homers. Um, I think probably another settling factor here is Yandy Diaz signed a long-term contract in the offseason. And he's always been a great on-base guy. And if you look at him, he's one of the strongest guys in the sport, probably in any sport. I mean, physically, he looks like he could be a bodybuilder. Um, and I think what he is learning, I think with the contract, it allowed him to say, okay, Maybe when I get in these 2031 counts, um, I'm going to look for a ball to drive. I'm going to look for a ball to pull. Um, and he, as we talk, already has eight home runs this year. Now, I think the high he's had is 14. If he hits 20, that's a big jump. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you have a lot of guys in this lineup who are all in that 20 range. I think there's five, nine guys who've hit at least five home runs um, to this point of the year. And I think that's the other thing is the depth of the lineup has been really, really good. The 7.89 production has been the best OPS-wise in the game. And, and when you're producing all the way through, you're grinding through at bats, everybody feels they have a hand in this. They hand off the bat to one another instead of trying to do too much, mm-hmm. instead of trying to be the guy. And certainly there are going to be moments where you feel that's the case. They were shut out back-to-back games in a series earlier this year against Houston uh, when they threw Urquidy um, and Garcia. And, and they did a great job of executing to the race weaknesses. But I think by and large, it's been a group that has said, okay, we're going to get beat. We're going to get beat on certain days, but most days we believe in the group we have. Um, and I think the depth of the lineup has been the key. And it's not only one through nine, it's really one through 13. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that stands out to me is there was a game in Chicago where the race rested Wander Franco and Randy Rosarena and scored nine runs where they rested Brandon Lau and scored you know, or, or or it was uh, Yandy Diaz, and maybe it was Yandy and Wander, and they scored nine, and they rested Randy and Harold Ramirez, and they scored eight runs. And it seems like that happens on a regular basis, that it doesn't matter which nine they're starting, um, because I think they all believe that they can all benefit, um, and they can all be good. And I think some of the guys who had been really good in AAA and had struggled in the major leagues last year are now, start, now starting to come into their own a little bit this year because of their comfort level and their confidence. 
Yeah, incredible depth will help a team do incredible things, that's for sure. He's Neil Solons of the Rays Radio Network, joins me here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game on the WadeFord.com hotline. Uh, heading into this weekend, if you look at the team offensive stats and something we've touched on already here, Tampa Bay sitting at or near the top in just about everything, with home runs, runs, OPS. And I want to bring this back to kind of the parallel between the Braves because I had Jeff Passon on the show last week and he compared the Rays lineup to that of the Braves with the depth, mm. with the power, the fact that you have a lot of different threats. You're not counting on just one or two players to carry the entire thing. And I don't feel like there are too many places you can go in the Braves lineup if you're looking for outs. And I would say that that is probably a pretty apt description of what the Rays lineup is. A lot of that that obviously you just covered. I would agree. Um, you know, certainly I think that if you look at the lineup as a whole, probably and the catchers have produced to this point, you know, they've got even a half dozen homers between them, between Christian Bethancourt and Francisco Mejia. Um But I would say you rely on them more for defense than offense. I think Jose Siri, who's playing the better part of the games in center field, would be considered the same. But I still think you're getting production out of them. Um, You know, Jose Siri earlier in the week had executed a double steal of home plate, and he's one of the faster guys in the game. Mm -hmm. Um, And Christian Bethencourt had about a 10 or 15 game stretch where he hit five home runs. So um, and Francisco Mejia has already had a four hit game this year. So, and even, even when they're not producing, I think they've been really good. There was a game against the pirates where Mitch Keller was knocked out after five plus innings because he threw almost hundred pitches. Well, Francisco Mejia saw 16 of those pitches in two plate appearances. Yeah. So even when guys aren't coming up with results, I think the quality of the at bat all the way through has made them a very tough out and it's really forced teams to use the bullpen what we call the way you have to instead of the way you want to. Yeah, and that really adds up because it's not just about scoring runs. It's also about preventing runs. And if you look at the pitching stats for the Rays staff led by Shane McClanahan, I would say it's kind of the figurehead of that. But another well-rounded group, you'll find the Rays at or near the top of the leaderboard there. So just a great and well-rounded team. And we could spend probably all morning (laughs) talking about them for sure. Now, let me ask you this, or let, let me close out with this because I know that this has been I think in your words, a bittersweet kind of year because, yes, there has been so much success for the Rays on the field, but the Rays baseball family suffered a great loss this spring with the sudden passing of Dave Wills. His booming voice and warm personality, I think, was known the game over and is sorely missed. And I know that there's a term that gets thrown around, you know, the best in the business. But from my experience, Dave was truly that, and I know you share that feeling. Yeah, I felt that Dave, you know, working with Andy Freed were the best team in in sports broadcasting and play-by-play um they truly were a team they truly were a pair um they you know they had meals together they they did everything together during the course of the season they were brothers and i felt you know that they made me feel like one of their brothers all the time too so it's been emotional um you know from uh, the day this happened on march the 5th um to where we sit right now but um, I almost, you know, I see him in the booth with us in a lot of occasions. Um, and he would have been the first to say, move it along, guys. You got to enjoy this. Yeah. And as difficult as it is, we are, you know, finding ways every day to enjoy what's going on. Um, you know, sometimes we joke that there's an angel in the outfield with us, and maybe that's why all these home runs have been here. <laughs> you definitely feel, I mean, Andy and I have looked at one another at times and wondered, wow, is this real? Um, you know, and I think we've said that, you know, in, in some ways about the way we've missed Dave, but also the amazing things that have happened. 
uh, to this point. And I think he would be enjoying this as much as anybody. And for that reason, we're trying to enjoy it as much as anybody too, as, as difficult and as challenging as it is. Um, you know, we always talked about leading the, we can't lead the league in wins every year, but we can lead the league in fun. Um, and whether we win or lose, regardless of this amazing streak, we're going to continue to have a lot of fun in the booth in his honor. Uh, it's a way to recognize him. Um, and hopefully the fun on the field continues for a long time too. Absolutely. And I know baseball has a way of bringing people together, connecting generations, fostering friendships and a great way to, Honor somebody, somebody like Dave is to enjoy the game of baseball because he most certainly did. Neil, I appreciate all of your time. He is Neil Solon's pre- and post-game host for the Rays Radio Network. Follow him on Twitter at Neil Solon's. That's Solon's with a Z on the end. Neil, uh, really enjoyed it. Look forward to chatting with you again sometime soon. Sounds good, Grant. Thanks for having me on. When we come back, we'll jump into our Braves discussion for the week to come right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Well, it was a great Sunday of baseball for the Atlanta Braves who walked off the Baltimore Orioles. What was a bit earlier start than we're accustomed to, but all's well that ends well, and the Braves took two out of three from a very good O's club. Talked about that a lot earlier in the show. We'll talk about it a little bit more here, but two out of three after their sweep over Miami, after the 5-1 and one road trip overall, taking two out of three from the New York Mets in a Really rainy weekend uh, a week ago, but uh, things have been going the Braves' way uh, thus far in the season, much more so than the last couple of years, that's for sure. And getting off to a better start, when you think about how well this club starts playing, when they get everybody together and get going and and maybe hit their stride, this could be one of the best Braves clubs that you're going to see for a long time. But they know that the real work, that's what happens when they're done with the 162. That's where they really want to win those games. They did it a couple of years ago. But they've got the team to do it again. We'll see how all that's able to play out. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We do have a lot of other Braves topics and things to get into on today's show. Before we get out of here, of course, this is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you on this Sunday evening, as always. If you missed anything on the show, including my great chat with Ryan Fagan about Dick Perez, the artist in charge of all those Donruss Diamond Kings that you might have collected back in the day, you can find that on the podcast. In addition to my chat with Neil Solons, who you just heard from the Rays Radio Network, Really great to catch up with him. I've known Neil for a very long time. Uh, my heart obviously goes out to the Rays baseball family for the loss of Dave Wills in spring training. Unexpected. It doesn't even begin to cover it. And, uh, you know, the, to see the Rays doing what they're doing this year, as Neil talked about, it is kind of like Dave smiling down real big on this club for what they're doing thus far this year. But if you want to check out those conversations, so many more, and all the great guests that show up on From the Diamond on a week-to-week basis, wherever you get your podcasts or on the Odyssey app, you can also go to fromthediamond.com for links to all of that. Now, the Braves continue their homestand this week, and they're going to get to pack in a couple of scheduled off days beginning on Monday. Then they'll have two games against the Boston Red Sox, and then, of course, they'll have the off day on Thursday. But I noticed some things over the weekend, and, and dating back to the Miami trip, of course, and one of the things that I've noticed, and I call it a thing because we've been talking about it for a long time, Marcel Ozuna is one of the topics that has come up and been the eternal question of, all right, well, when do we reach a, a decision point with Marcel? When is he going to start hitting? When is this, that, the other? But it always seemed to come back to how much longer can things go on the way that they are? And that, of course, would be lack of production. How much more can you really run something out there for the definition of insanity and see if it's going to work out? But the Braves have you know, stuck with him. He did have a relatively good spring, especially the last couple of weeks. 
and then he just hit a brick wall coming into the season, and it just didn't look good at all. But with the Braves walk off of the Baltimore Orioles on Sunday with Michael Harris and his his uh, RBI double in that 12th inning, you might have noticed the way that inning played out. You had Ozzy Albies out on second base already when Kevin Pillar struck out. The Marlins made the decision to go ahead and or excuse me, the Marlins. The Orioles made the decision to go ahead and walk Marcelo Zuna. I'm sure the Marlins will walk Marcelo Zuna the next time they see him. And they might should have done it a few times in that last series because he absolutely tattooed those boys. But as it is, when in the any time in the last couple of years would you have sat there with me telling you, okay, well, here's what you got to do. You got to intentionally walk Marcelo Zuna. I've talked about how tough this Braves lineup is to get any kind of outs from. And now all of a sudden we're finally seeing an opportunity to make it even harder for pitchers to go through the Braves lineup and find outs because Marcelo Zuna over his last six games, batting 296, he's eight for his last 27. Four of those hits are home runs, including one in the Baltimore series. He's knocked in seven runs. He's also drawn, uh, drawn five walks. So he has been on base 13 times between hits and walks and a bunch of those hits leaving the ballpark in the last six games. I'm not telling you that he's completely turned the corner, but that's the kind of encouraging thing. You need to see the power. You need to see his ability to get on base and his ability to affect a game. And on this day, the Orioles felt like, hey, maybe we don't want to mess with Marcelo Zuna. He's a little bit too dangerous for us. We're going to go out to the matchup we want, and maybe we can get Michael Harris out. I don't know that you necessarily walk somebody to set up a double play when the next guy is a speedy guy or if you're just going by the book, but whatever the case. Now, the Braves will certainly take it because Marcelo Zuna was put on base and Michael Harris delivered the game-winning run for the Braves. But it just does kind of go back to show that Marcelo Zuna has been swinging the bat much better lately. I think he's firmly ensconced in that DH spot because you talked about, or I talked about, um, Eddie Rosario swinging the bat better lately. That's another one that you can look at going back over the last couple of weeks. He had some good hits in the Orioles series. He started to get that power stroke back from time to time. And I think Eddie can help you out in left field quite a bit. And Kevin Pillar, this was kind of, in a lot of ways, like the 26th man on the roster. You knew he was a veteran who could do some things for you that you liked. He can run well. He's a good defender. He'll grind out some at-bats for you. He's got a little bit of power. I mean, you're not going to get it done every single time, but Brian Snitker went to the bench on Saturday with his team trailing by a run, and he pinch hit for Eddie Rosario, which at first I kind of wondered. I'm like, well, Eddie's been hot. Do we really want to play the matchup here? Well, it turns out we do. We did. We definitely wanted to play the matchup. And Kevin Pillar hit a go-ahead two-run home run. His 100th of his career. Congratulations to him. Way to make it memorable. And that helped the Braves even up that series with Baltimore. And then, of course, you know they're able to walk it off, win that series today. But you look at the mix out there in the outfield, I still think you can mix Sam Hilliard in some here and there. I know he's kind of hit the skids over the last week or so. But, I mean, he's got an awful lot of tools. He's a very good outfielder. You know, can run, got a little bit of power. I think it's hard sometimes for players to really get into a groove when they're kind of yo-yoing in and out of the lineup. But either way, I think you've got more talent and more answers. But in the DH spot, if Marcelo Zuna is able to become that power threat that you sign him to be, and you're just asking him to hit somewhere seventh, eighth in the lineup, that's an awfully good weapon to have if he's able to come anywhere close to his career norms. And we'll see if that is uh, something that plays out going ahead. But with Eddie Rosario starting to get some results over the past couple of weeks, I think he's helping out a lot. Kevin Pillar, the veteran, also helping out in that mix. But I think the big story of the day, it's kind of a surprise story of the day, the return of Orlando Arcia. I know talking to Brian Snitker a few days ago, they were encouraged by the progress Arcia was making, but it sounded like, okay, well, he's just picked up a bat. 
So he's moving in the right direction. He's been able to run. His arm is fine because it's a left wrist injury that he was dealing with. So it was going to affect the hand that had to go in the glove and obviously the bottom hand on the bat. That's where he got hit uh, by that pitch on April the 12th. As it turned out, I don't know if he's got the Wolverine healing factor, and that's something that seemed like Freddie Freeman had a few years ago when he came back so fast from a broken wrist. But they needed, I think, the stability of Orlando Arcia back on that infield. For Vaughn Grissom, the work continues. You know, go back down to AAA, it's going to be disappointing. You know, if you got to kick a trash can on your way out, I guess you can do that. I think we all have kind of been there when, when you just, you're not getting the results that you want, but you got to get over it pretty quick and get back down there and realize that the work continues. And I do think for Vaughn, he's got a good work ethic, but he's got to get that all figured out. We've got Braden Shoemake up as a reserve for this club right now in the infield with Ara Adrianza also on the injured list. But having Orlando Arcia back in there, I think we saw a handful of plays on Sunday that just kind of reminded you, oh, yeah, that guy is pretty smooth. I think that's why he won that starting shortstop job coming out of spring training. That return is a big one. Vaughn Grissom going down to AAA again. I think just right now, maybe the answer is Orlando Arcia. Down the road, who knows where Vaughn Grissom could factor into this story. But he had a rough go of it at short, had a rough go of it at the plate of late as well. And I do think that the surprise return or otherwise, I mean, I was surprised, of Orlando Arcia was one of the highlights of this weekend. Now, somebody who's been a highlight of this entire season, you might think, oh, I'm going to go to Ronald Acuna Jr. here and talk for the next five minutes about every single thing that this kid can do. And I could do that. And I've closed a lot of shows doing that. And I'll probably close another show doing that. But I'm not going to talk about Ronald Acuna Jr., at least not yet, not right this moment. Sean Murphy has been putting up some of the best production in the majors. And while he might have come over in this trade that a lot of people kind of shrugged their shoulders at and said, I thought we were fine at catcher. Why do we trade Wilson or William Contreras? Why do we trade our guy? Because we also have all-star Travis Darneau, who's on his rehab assignment, by the way. We talked about that earlier in the show, and he could be back sometime this week. Then you'd have Murphy and Darneau back in harness, which would be a great thing. But the durability that Sean Murphy has shown in handling the everyday duties behind the plate with – very seldom a day off. Chadwick Trump has caught a handful of games since coming up from AAA. It has been Murphy's show, and it has been a show not only behind the plate with how he has handled his staff, the throwing arm that just is one of the best you're ever going to see, but also what he's been doing at the plate as well. I looked up Sean Murphy's numbers, and coming into Sunday, he was leading all of Major League Baseball and wins above replacement according to Fangrass, or F-War, if you prefer. Not all catchers, not the National League, not the Atlanta Braves. Well, he's actually leading all of them, too, but leading every player in baseball. Ronald Lacuna Jr. is second to Sean Murphy. A 2.3 war thus far for Sean Murphy, 2.1 for Ronald Lacuna Jr. Both of those are absurd numbers, let me just tell you that. When you're talking about 34, 35 games into the season, that puts them on pace to be roughly somewhere around a 10-win player. And if you put up a 10-win season, you've done some things right. And if you do that enough, you're going to end up in the Hall of Fame. But there's a lot of baseball that to be played. I'm not sure if Sean Murphy's going to keep up the offensive exploits. But thus far, when you look at the leaders in the National League, you're going to find Sean Murphy's name up and down some of these lists. He is second in Major League Baseball, first in the National League in OPS. That's on base plus slugging, 1,047. He's second in the National League with 28 runs batted in. He is tied for fifth in the National League with nine home runs. Matt Olson just untied him and went ahead by hitting his 10th home run in the win over Baltimore on Sunday. So you add it all up, and I knew that Sean Murphy, I, I felt like he had like an extra level that he could get to, offensively speaking, when he came over, just because the Coliseum was just so unkind to him 
over the four years that he was there, but I don't know that I really had expected this kind of offensive impact to the point where Sean Murphy's your cleanup guy, and I don't really know that there's anybody else that you'd want in that spot right now, and he may be holding it down for quite some time. So he's done some things as well, some adjustments that he's made this year that I've noticed. I mean, he's taking his walks, so he's getting on base at a ridiculous clip. That's one of the reasons why you would lead the National League in OPS. He's also swinging less than he has at any point in his career. So not only is he doing maximum damage when he does swing, he's being much more selective about when he's doing it as well. So just kind of taking it to the next level, a really great thing to see when it comes to Sean Murphy. Now, Ronald Acuna Jr. had an 0 for 5 on Sunday, but let me go ahead and do the thing I promised, which was talk about Ronald Acuna Jr. a little bit before we get out of here. He had another outfield assist, just an absolute laser. And it's just impressive to watch the difference in Ronald Acuna Jr. Well, let me put that to the side. It's impressive to watch Ronald Acuna Jr. at the height of his powers this year. And then you compare it to in 2022 when you just see the flashes. You knew it was there. Hey, there's that first to third. There's that speed. Hey, there's that throw in the outfield maybe. But we didn't see that a lot last year. He was very hesitant to leave his feet in the outfield as well. He was very hesitant to slide feet first, for that matter, a year ago. But now we're starting to see some power. We're seeing the on-base skills, both in the quality of the bats, the plate appearances, the quality of the hard-hit contact that he's got. I know he hasn't hit as many home runs as he's stolen bases, but when you're leading the big leagues in steals, as Ronald has been, you know, one of those columns is going to be a little bit ahead of the other one. But for the most part this year, he's kind of put himself into this weird category of, has anybody ever done that before? And I posted this a little bit earlier this week on Instagram. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, there are two players in baseball history that have had 30 home runs and 50 or more stolen bases in a season. And nobody's gotten to 30, 60, or beyond. Just let me throw that out there. So no one has hit 30 homers and stolen 100 bases. That hasn't happened. Ricky Henderson's a guy that you might have thought could have done it, but he did not in the, in the course of his Hall of Fame career, but he did a lot, lot of other great things. But the only two guys that have ever done that, and that's 30 home runs and 50 steals in the same year, Eric Davis in 1987. And I hate to have a TED Talk about Eric Davis every week, but I'm going to. If you don't know how good Eric Davis was and how – when I talked earlier about Matt Harvey being one of those what-if-he-could-have-stayed-healthy players, Eric Davis is my number one what-if-he-could-have-been-healthy, what would he have become? I think 400 homers. I think 500 stolen bases. I think gold gloves, I think MVPs, I think a lot of things about Eric Davis, but he was never able to stay healthy. So let me just put it in perspective. The only other guy with 30 homers and 50 steals in a season, which is something that Ronald Acuna Jr. is close to a pace to doing as of this week, is Barry Bonds, who did it in 1990, his first MVP season. That's pretty good company, I would say. Mike Trout came one stolen base away from it in his rookie year in 2012. So if you want to have Mike Trout in like the 1.5 1.5 column, like, you know, version 1.5, he was almost there too. But when you're doing things that, A, Mike Trout's never done, only Barry Bonds has done, and then you get back to Eric Davis, who I'd like to point out, 37 homers, 50 steals, 129 games. Give him 33 more games. We're talking about 40-something homers. We're talking about 60, 70-something steals. And the Cincinnati Reds posted this, and I, I promise I'll stop talking about Eric Davis, but I just get so excited about it. He's the only guy that in a 162-game span, I believe, had more than 40 uh, 40 home runs and 90 stolen bases in a 162-game span, and it was between 1986 and 87. It was a crossover of the two seasons, but still, there's a 162-game span where somebody's out there hitting 40 homers and stealing 90 bases? 
That's a create a player. That's a video game stat line. That's congratulations on creating your cheat player in MLB The Show. Here he is. He's a 99 in everything. Congratulations. You've, you've subverted the game. Be that as it may, that's going to wrap us up here. I guess I ran all my time out talking about Eric Davis. But thank you so much to Neil Solons of the Rays Radio Network for joining me to talk about what has been a really exciting team for Tampa Bay this year. And thank you so much to Ryan Fagan of the Sporting News for joining me to talk about Dick Perez, the Diamond Kings, the baseball cards. Eric Davis had one of those, and so did a lot of other great players. So did Barry Bonds, for that matter. We talked about that. And, of course, my thank you to all of you for joining me for Braves and Baseball Talk. You can do it each and every Sunday here on 92.9 The Game. We appreciate it. This is from the Diamonds. I'm Grant McCauley. We will catch you next Sunday. And until then, so long, everyone.